Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Century Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that will tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Century Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, and marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Real Estate, a local brokerage that can cover your real estate needs in Fairbanks, Alaska. The Hedgecock Group has been tied into the Fairbanks and North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their services tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. With a brokerage team made up of multi-generation Fairbanks locals, transplants, and military veterans, they really understand the unique aspects of living in the interior and what that means when it comes to shopping for a home or buying land to build a home. They also understand the situations that many military members are in when needing to buy or sell a home. Fairbanks is a unique place to live, and whether it's learning why some houses have water holding tanks instead of wells, estimating heating costs, or just what recreational opportunities are close by, they're ready to help. More than simply acquiring or building a piece of property, they can help you find the right property in the right place and help you learn from their experience. If you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Brett Evans and his team of expert realtors at 907 978 3765 or email brett b-r-e-t-t at hedgecockgroup.com That's how you do it. Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, and uh, stoked this evening to uh, to to have have someone I've been trying to connect with for quite a while, straight out of Quinnahawk, or <laughs> yeah. no, actually, you don't. I don't. You don't live in Quinnahawk anymore, right? But uh, um, Arthur Abalama, who uh, I started following on Instagram a while back, is your handle's Bama Bama nine oh seven, I think, and I thought, you know, initially I'm like, oh, must be a must be a Crimson Tide fan, <laughs> but oh. but no, yeah. So um, yeah, it's great to great to get you on here, and uh, yeah, you know, you know yourself better than anybody. So you know, you're you're in Bethel, right? Yeah, correct. I'm in Bethel. I've been here for about nine years, I think. Nice, nice. And you you pretty much grew up out in that region out there. Correct. Yep. I I grew up in uh, Quinnahawk which is a small town on the southeast uh, shore of the Kuskokwim Bay, 65 miles southeast of Bethel. Gotcha. And now my 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 like distasteful joke earlier that was that picture you shared from when you when you were a kid or something with the, the oh, like the real slim shades and it was like straight yeah. out of Quinnahawk. <laughs> that was uh with one of those uh, disposable cameras. Um, I took that picture I took a selfie with an old camera and couldn't see the angle and stuff. And <laughs> yeah. My mom got the films developed and it's been in my room ever since. I'm like, God, who, who let me do that? <laughs> oh man, dude. <laughs> we all just like that. <laughs> yeah. We all have those. Like I, it's funny. Cause for a, a long time growing up, like disposable cameras were the thing. Right. Yeah. You know, I even, it I even took them sheep hunting. Yeah do, yeah. do they, I don't think they sell them anymore. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, some of my early sheep hunts, like pictures are on, I'd take like two disposable cameras. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, what's funny is about 10 years ago when digi cams are getting popular, right? My grandma, she's 83 now. So she had 
was early 70s then and she's she's like arthur you're always taking all these pictures i've never seen them <laughs> because we switched to digicams yeah <laughs> i only got iphones yeah so then the pictures are yeah the pictures aren't actually sitting around everywhere yeah. um, i mean i remember uh i don't know if you guys had to send them off i remember when i was a kid like a little uh, young and you'd have to like turn your camera in and they'd send it off to get developed. And then you had one hour photos. So you'd buy one of those cameras and take like five pictures of something you were excited about and then just yeah. burn all the other pictures and go get it developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, man. So yeah, grew, grew up out, out in, uh, in Quinnahawk and doing, uh, all kinds of, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, you know, there, I, I'm trying to remember where this guy was from. I I, sk- I skinned fur for a few years for uh, a fur buyer here in town, and he'd buy a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff from some guys like a lot of mink, like really nice mink out in that Kuskokwim and otters. Yeah. And I was always, uh, I mean, there's so much stuff to to learn from from like the old timers out there. I was amazed at how well there was a couple guys in particular, how well they could put up otters and flush them. Like yeah. you could you could eat off them. It was pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of trappers left. I mean, there's there's a few guys I know that still really get after it. Yeah, especially with otters. You know, there's a guy in, in the Bethel that worked at the flight school I went to, and he would run his line. I'd come with him once in a while. And there's an old guy in Quinnahawk who, man, he'd get like 35 land otters a year. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that was kind of his source of income in the winter time. Yeah. And he'd, in the summer yeah and the i mean yeah especially the recent years the, the way the fur market's been and like not getting snow for years which that i mean that's affected affected you out getting after the wolves out there too yeah. big time yeah it yeah. doesn't snow like it used to anymore nowadays it's it's hit or miss like last year was amazing and between me and all my buddies we killed 86 86 wolves. 10, yep there's there's about 10 of us that get out so each of us got anywhere between like, you know, five and 10 wolves. And that's just off a snow machine. That's not trapping. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and then this year, I only tallied 16 in, you know, I mean, the snow was good for like two days. Yeah. With each storm. And we had three storms of it. During those two days, I was at, stuck at work. Oh, man. So it was really hard to get out this year. Yeah, you keep a pretty good uh, Instagram story going on just all the stuff you're up to. So I can, I can, I feel your pain, man, because I remember you were all excited it was getting good and then whatnot. Which that's something that's uh, you know a lot of people don't don't get. It's a big deal being able to run wolves out in that country um, with snow machines. I mean, you get you like you get 86 wolves out of area that make puts a big puts a big dent in them, and you know saves a lot of moose and caribou. I mean, I, I used to skin a bunch that, uh, or I would finish like putting them up for mm. people out of like, uh, uh, Norvik and, in those areas, they would, they would kill them and skin them and then like leave the heads and feet in and send them in. And I'd end up putting them up. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize how big of a deal it is out there for you guys to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think there's, definitely more like younger younger kids getting out after wolves um i think the i think people are getting out because uh like the media like not the media social media people are seeing dead wolves are like oh yeah i want to do that you know and yeah. then also the caribou population went from 200,000 to less than 13,000 in less than 20 years so our caribou are hurting we can't even hunt them anymore yeah, and that's that. Is it the Mulchatna herd? Mulchatna, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. No, that's a big deal, and that's uh, you know how 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 does it does it seem to you like you know getting young guy young young kids out like into hunting and trapping and stuff? It's got to be tough with all the gas like fuel prices and every you know machines and everything's yeah. so expensive now. Yeah, I mean it's definitely not cheap, but I I mean I'm pretty stoked that a lot more younger kids are getting out. And, you know, technology is so advanced. I mean, so are vehicles. I mean, my snow machines, I got an 850 E-Tech. Yeah. And I, I can get 14 miles to a gallon, you know. And the snow goes from 10 years ago even only went 10 miles a gallon. So Yeah, or less, or less than that, like, some of them. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think also the the quality of the machines we get nowadays are a lot more reliable. You know, you got the 900 A's for a stroke that's quiet. It's, and, you know, you, you can go a long ways with it. It's kind of fast. It's definitely not a two-stroke, but I think you get two-stroke power with it, maybe lower-end power anyway. Yeah, that lower-end. I mean, I know I, I, I've I had a 600, a 600 A's for to over 10 years now. And it's and it's all oh, nice silver bullets, like I'm like I'm drinking along with you, <laughs> but uh, cut out, cut out there. Oh, I was just gonna say I saw I saw your silver bullet there. Oh. So, um, <laughs> no, I, I I really like that six hundred that six hundred ace, and I mean gas mileage. I can I can go probably two hundred mi- two hundred miles on a tank of gas. Yeah, um, it, it's incredible. <laughs> They sip the snows hard. Yeah, yeah. No, if you have, I I have a six hundred ace, and I burnt more fuel trying to keep up with the guys with the nine hundred aces. Oh, gotcha. See, we have like even eight inches of snow on the ground. I burnt more fuel than my eight fifty burns. Wow, that six hundred ace because with snow on the ground, it only goes so fast. I mean, you're doing forty five miles an hour full throttle. Yeah keep up you know and a, a good pace for me and all my buddies for wolf hunting we travel about 45 in the rough stuff and 60 where it's smooth like that's that's the average moving pace yeah so, Did, do they uh what's kind of your strategy with that do you just have a big circuit you run and like try to cut tracks and and well <clears throat> so to break it down we can't track them it's illegal yeah um but you can position yourself on a snow machine to shoot so sort of my strategy is like i just you know you gotta be like the wolf man and so the wolf when they approach prey or something they've already killed they approach it from from high points you know Mm -hmm. like beaver hut or a hill that's why you see all these old knolls and hills with, with grass clumps on them is because you know, not just wolves, all the other predators use those high points to, to you know, see better. So mm-hmm. I say, like, when I go out, I kind of pick a general area gen, um, and hit all the high points and just glass. I mean, gotcha. <clears throat> like, for example, last spring, um, I knew where the, the, there was a herd of caribou, about a thousand caribou between the Eek and Quethuk rivers. And I sat on them for five hours because they were kind of close to the tree line. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no point in me running around, scaring them off. I'm just going to sit here. And five hours later, sure enough, three wolves popped out of the brush and I kind of watched what they did and, and uh, <clears throat> howled at them and they howled back and waited till they got away from the trees before I uh, positioned myself for a shot. Yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, it, it's really cool to hear that all that, like the strategy and knowing knowing how they how they act and what they're going to do. You know, like most people would would not see any wolves around the herd of caribou and just move on. You know, move on looking for them somewhere else. But yep. you know, like it makes sense to me if you know there's there's a big herd of caribou right there. The, the there's going to be wolves nearby somewhere. Right. But yeah, yeah, that's no, it cool. It takes a lot of patience and. And good, good glass. Yeah, for sure. Um, mm. and, and you're probably putting a ton of miles on just covering, getting some of that country out there, which is why, you know, it's pretty wide open for the most part. I think, you know, you can, you, it's so dependent on having good snow conditions just to get around. Right. <clears throat> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's for the most part, it's pretty open. I think the, the widest, area on the rivers is probably like three miles wide yeah um with brush but other than that it's mostly open nice so but i mean we still lose them in the trees and once once they're in the trees it's game over yeah so yeah it's tough i know there was some uh i can't remember what they said because there was some like positioning stuff that was being talked about at the board of game basically just to make it easier for easier for you guys um I don't know why I got into that because I I forget what they were even saying, but 
Um, no, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. We can't, and, and the, the terrain around here isn't really suitable for doing it, for doing it anyway, but it's a pretty valuable tool for you guys out there. Um, and before I get too far, I was going to, what, what got, when did you get into flying? Um, so <clears throat> man, you know, growing up, even at like 10 years old, I knew I wanted to fly airplanes. I just, I was always fascinated by them. Um, and my, my uncle bought a super cub. I think I was 11 or 12 years old when he brought it to Quinnahawk and once in a while he'd take me, uh, flying, you know, checking out stuff. Like he, he lives in Quinnahawk. He, he hardly leaves Quinnahawk and he's, he's got that super cub. So every fall we, you know, kind of fly around and see where, um, moose are and, you know, kind of go hunt that area afterwards. And, or, you know, he flies his family to nearby villages and visit and whatnot. So I just, I knew I wanted to fly at a very young age. And, um, <clears throat> I remember my, my grandpa, but he, he died like 10 years before I was born and they said he had airplanes and he flew. So, so I definitely realized at a young age that I was going to fly. So, um, I'm not sure I understand. sorry, <clears throat> it took me three years to get through high school. So I graduated when I was 17, went straight to, um, Bethel where they had a flight school here. Um, and I was run by the, the local corporation <clears throat> and it was a part 61 school. So you can, you can work at your own pace, um, as opposed to like a part 41 school yeah. where it's more like a like a college type, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I got scholarships from the local corporations and I booked myself to fly with an instructor like twice a day, every day for as long as I could. That sounds like the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I, it, looking back, like my instructor, my first instructor wasn't, that great and we just kept going up and doing the same thing over and over and over again and i built 60 hours by the time i got my license and then i moved to a different instructor and like within two weeks i had an instrument rating oh, and then nice. after that i had to wait to for one turn 18 years old and two build nighttime because you know in the summer it doesn't get dark here yeah and so <clears throat> i think in in late august i finally accrued my nighttime and then september 2nd i got my commercial pilot's license at 18 years old and two days later i'm sitting in the hagelin ground school and um hagelin aviation was a pretty big company they were the biggest 135 operator in the u.s and they had a lot of airplanes and it was a lot it was it was great man i, I worked there for 11 years and I missed it. It's pretty sad that they went bankrupt. But yeah, I think anyway. I I think I flew with them. I think it was them that I flew with. The first first uh, construction job I worked on out in the bush was a school out in Kotlik. And I think I flew, okay. I think I I think it was with them that I flew from St. Mary's out there. Oh, it, it was definitely them. Yeah, because they were the operator out of St. Mary's. Yeah, within the last twenty years. Yeah, who know? I, I don't know. Who knows? It may have been you that flew me out there. <laughs> I don't know. What year was it? Uh, to uh, what was that? It was like probably 2010 ish, maybe. I mean, if if you know, <laughs> chances are pretty nil because I was in 2000, 2010, I was a co pilot. Okay, gotcha. But I wasn't the same then, so I, I moved every month. Gotcha. So, yeah, I don't know. I the the chief at the time. Just, you know, every time I asked him where I'm going to work, he'd, you know, he'd say Barrow or Kotzebue yeah. or, oh, go to Bethel or St. Mary's. It was different every yeah. two weeks. So I, I, li I literally lived in two totes in a suitcase. Oh, man. Every two weeks. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to see a lot of country anyway, <laughs> do a lot of flying. Yeah. But, uh, it's, so yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, I learned from a lot of different pilots uh, and, Pretty much hit every single 
village in the west coast from Dillingham to Barrow, or past Barrow. I guess it would be Barter Island. Yeah, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of like people. You say that people that haven't kind of been across and seen that don't realize how much air how much area that is. Like it's that's yeah. a lot of. It's, and I I attended Mount Edgecombe High School for a year, my freshman year, and I met a lot of people. So pretty much like everywhere I flew, I knew people. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, and you're you're flying for Renfro's now? Yep. Um, when Raven went under, Wade Renfro picked me up. Um, and I've moved from line pilot to chief pilot now. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Nice. <clears throat> that's, that's awesome. And you do, you do like some survey flying and stuff like that too, don't you? Yep. I... I do pretty much everything. Like I, I fly every plane that we have and um, I specialize in off airport on floats, wheels or skis. And uh, I work pretty closely with fish and game. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I enjoy it very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been told, and I know I've like, I've said it on the podcast before. I've been told by a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of pilots and it seems to be true. Like me, you know, if you're most guys that are flying a lot, like, or, or, you know, have their own planes or whatnot, it's like, it's in you, like you, you want to fly and you'll do anything to do it. And, right. uh, yeah, yeah. I, I never get tired of it. I mean, yeah. for 12 years now and sometimes I just can't get enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I can't, I can't blame you there. I finally decided that I think it, I think it's probably not, not for me. I just have, I'm the type of person, I have too much stuff that I like to do. Yeah. But, uh, no, that's, that's really cool. And it's awesome to have the opportunity to like get all your training out there, you know, to not have to leave and go somewhere to, to do all that, you know, kind of get trained in your, your home area. Right. Um, Let's see what the heck else. Um, what is your? What do you think your your favorite your favorite thing to hunt? I mean, I see you doing all kinds of stuff, getting your get getting the kids out and and doing yeah. stuff with the family. What What do you think? What's your favorite thing to hunt? Man, nothing beats a moose during the rut. Yeah, when you call it in, and that's that's my top favorite animal to hunt. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've just, I, I, I enjoy it so much and I, I actually haven't shot a lot of moose, but, um, people that I hunt with have shot, like my wife shot, I don't know, the last five, six moose Yeah, every year and, and my kids are getting into it. So, um, definitely moose during the rut. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's fun. What do you, and you, do you most, do you do kind of a mix of, of spotting them and calling them or do you primarily like, like calling them? I don't like spot and stock. I primarily, I, I only enjoy it if I get to call it in. Yeah. And I've had high success with calling them even in on the, the first of September and everyone's like, Oh, you're not going to, you're not going to call them in that yeah. early. Like, it's too early, you know, but I, man, it's been every year for the last eight years in a row. I called them in in early September, like the first three days. Nice, yeah, and that that's funny. Yeah, <clears throat> on one hand, you have people tell you like moose calling super, super simple, and sometimes it is super simple. Like I, I'm still kind of figuring right. it out. You know, like we do, we do okay. But I spent I spent so many years just chasing sheep and just trying to shoot a little bull around town for me right. that I, you know, it's, it's kind of been a new thing that I've, I've gotten really into the past couple of years and trying to learn. And I, I pretty much anybody, yeah. anybody who's a good moose hunter that I, that I talk to, I, I try to pick their brain, you know, what's, what's your, uh, kind of, if you don't mind sharing, what's your kind of go-to like calling strategy or, or theory about, about calling moose? It seems like everyone has their own like little tricks and things that, that work for them. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll share a little bit. So, early season, um, you mostly kind of use like a scraping 
technique. I always save a few moose scapulas, clean them up, dry them out, and use that because it's, it's bone and it makes a very uh, realistic uh, moose antler scraping sound. Mm-hmm. And so I start with that um, for probably like the first, I don't know, first 10 days. And that usually gets get some pretty well usually you know the bigger ones they because they're doing the same thing yeah and usually you start seeing scrape moose by like the earliest i've ever seen in this area is august 24th oh wow and and, and that was this year before that the earliest was like august 26th and i'm always looking like mm-hmm. i fly a lot and i'm always looking and usually then bigger bulls start scraping late august early early september and so being out with the moose, you hear them scraping too. And so I just kind of do the scraping technique for to begin with. And then mm-hmm. a lot of times that'll like get the moose's attention. They start coming in and you just kind of watch them. And I just kind of do what they do, you know, and, and I've had, I've had moose, come in and just kind of hang up like at 200 yards, 150 yards and the scraping is no longer working. And I start either whacking the scapula on trees to make it you know louder. Yeah. Or once in a while throwing a cow call. And um, <clears throat> when that happens, it usually brings them right in. I mean, I've shot plenty of moose within, 40 yards yeah. and every time they're that close, I'm like, man, I really need, need to get into bow hunting because I mean, I think that's within bow range. I don't know. I've only, I've only used rifles. Oh yeah. But. No, for, yeah. For the right, you know, especially with a con, you know, with a compound, if you're practiced up, like that's a totally mm-hmm. doable shot and you could probably get them closer. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've had moose at 20 yards mm-hmm. and you know, broadside in the open, I'm, and I'm just like, yeah, like for, for one year, <laughs> okay, okay, one year, Holly and I, my wife Holly, we left Bethel, and we were 11 miles upriver, <clears throat> and so we went to a meadow, so th- there's a lot of people that hunt here, mm-hmm. I mean, there's gunshots every couple yeah. minutes, boats at every bend and so i try to get off the kind of get off the main main river and so we 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 hit this meadow it's kind of a big meadow um 11 miles from bethel and we approached it from the top end it was about a 200 yike 200 200 hard yike ah sorry no (laughs) 200 hard hike into the the alders to get to the tip of the meadow Mm -hmm. the weather is nasty it's like blowing 30 knots rain showers coming through and we're sitting there two hours pass and um we're not seeing any moose in about every 10 minutes or so i would glass if i didn't see anything that looked like a moose and i would use a spotting scope and a lot of times you you can find a moose by like like just a piece of moose fur or the antler like a tine sticking out mm-hmm. and you spot when you suspect the moose, you just kind of watch it. And I've, I've spotted plenty of moose that way. And so after the binoculars, I use a spotting scope and I'm looking down the meadow a mile away. This guy comes out of it. Or at first he was wearing like a dark, like a, like a black coat or something. And I'm yeah. like, Holly, there's a moose yeah, coming out. And then there's a face. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's Kevin <laughs> White. I know him, you know, like, <laughs> I'm like waving my arms, like get out of here! I was here first, you know. Yeah, I'm all frustrated with the because there's so many people there. So we hiked to the next meadow, which is about 150 yards away. And these meadows are pretty long and skinny. They're like the old oxbows, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Stuff. So the the meadow's only about I don't know, maybe 80 yards wide. And so we get to the tip of that on the top end, and there's freshly scraped alders and i'm like there's gotta be a moose here and so it's going 30 knots i'm like 
a cow or moose is not going to hear scraping and and so we're standing in the the grass and i made a one cow call <clears throat> and this is september 4th like early season yeah and 30 seconds later my wife is shaking my shoulder like oh my god moose we're here and i look to my right there's this moose standing 20 yards away <laughs> i'm like we're we it, it was like getting caught with your pants i'm like you couldn't do anything you couldn't duck the moose already yeah. sees you and so i'm like all right well can you shoot him <laughs> and she's like i don't know normally when we hunt moose i can talk her through everything yeah and not be rushed. It's not just a, he's there, got to shoot him now. <laughs> right. And so it was that situation where, like, it's already here. It's too late. We we need to shoot right now. And so she was kind of startled with that, and she had a hard time getting the scope cover off her scope. Mm-hmm. I had to help her with that, and she shot. And, you know, shooting that close, she shot kind of kind of low. Yeah. Um so kind of like shot the brisket and I could tell he was hit and he takes off and stops. She shoots him two more times and then, and then got him down. And so like, you know, people say that you can't call him in early season, but I seem to have success every year because, because I fly uh, moose hunters, I usually only get to hunt the first 10 days. Yeah. And we've, never had an unsuccessful year. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I, th- you know, I think a lot, and it's funny. I try to, whenever I hear it and the, uh, see what I'm gathering my thoughts, the older <laughs> I say, the older I get, I feel like I'm not that old, but I'm a little bit older than I used to be. I try the more, I try to like take every, anytime someone's like, Oh, this never works or that never works. You know, I try to take it with a grain of salt because, right. <laughs> you know, there on one hand like people's experience and stories like yeah that that like means it does have some meaning but it's not always everything and sometimes right. you know if right. you if you're just trying to like you know if you're a bad moose caller of course you're probably or you're super aggressive you're probably not going to have much luck early in the season or it, it's just it's cool to hear everybody you know everybody's perspective and like little things that work for everybody cuz i yeah you know I don't know that I've called that many in early, early on. I know I did shoot one in my dad's backyard that was like getting ready yeah. to hump his like 3d elk <laughs> target. No shit. He, oh, he, uh, he had bought this 3d elk target for his bow and had it standing up in the backyard and it had been like knocked over a couple times. He didn't know what the deal was, but, uh, it was like September 2nd. We were having a like Labor Day barbecue <laughs> And it was kind of, it was a little chilly outside. Everyone was inside eating and this bull, little bull comes walking in the yard and he was still kind of velvety. But by the time I ran and strung up one of his bows in the garage and went out and I, by the time I stepped outside, he was over there rubbing his neck up on that like, elk <laughs> target. And I kind of like, I just had a white t-shirt on, you know, I wasn't hiding. So I kind of walked towards him and I got about 10 yards. I walked towards him grunting at him and I got like 10 yards from him. And he got, he got all hackled up and like took a couple steps at me. Like he was going to, you know, laid his ears down. Like he was mad at me. And so I kind of took a couple steps back and I had to like shuffle. He was guarding that cow, like (laughs) that cow elk target. So I had to walk around him to get a broadside shot. It wasn't exactly hunting, but, um, they will, they will take an opportunity early if they can. And, uh, it was, it was the easiest, the easiest pack out I ever had. I just cut him up and back the truck that up to him. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. No packing there. It's already at the house. Yeah, no, it's, it, it doesn't get any, it doesn't get any better than that, mm. which I'm sure you fully appreciate like where to, where to kill moose and where not to kill them. <laughs> right. Right. You know, on the airstrip is preferable, preferable, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, uh, you know, they tell there's been more than one person that I've told don't shoot one more than a mile off off a river or a creek or wherever you can get your boat or, or four wheeler or whatever too. And you do people will do it once. 
Mm-hmm. And, then, and then they usually yeah, learn. I, I stopped my fair share of moose off the river. Like one time I shot a moose that was two miles away. Oh, and no. My, my uncle was so mad. It took us two <laughs> days to pack it to the boat. And he's young at me in Yupik saying that I shot the moose because I'm a boy and I don't know any better. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was like 14 at the time. Yeah, my very my very first bull. He was uh, we were pike fishing actually, and and just camping and stuff. It was the first year I was a resident. I was seventeen. We'd moved up here when I was sixteen, and my uncle, my dad, my uncle was had lived up here the whole time. My dad was born up here. Anyway, we ended up. Long story short, shooting this bull, and he was a sixty inch bull, like a nice bull, still the biggest one I've ever killed. And he yeah. fall. He's out in the middle of this clearing, you know, kind of a, in the middle of a big oxbow slough, and he falls, and then water starts splashing up, <laughs> and we're just like, "Oh no!" My uncle looks at my dad. He said, "Do you know what our dad would tell us right now?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What would he say? Oh, he'd say, "You're dealing with that yourself, or something, you know, <laughs> something like that." You know, he wasn't. Yeah, he would. I think he would, he would, I know he would never shoot one that he couldn't get his truck to. And they used to take pickup trucks all over, you know, and stuff that is unfathomable. Now they just have a bunch of boards and handyman jacks, you know, it's really in pretty incredible what a lot of the, you know, old timers can do or, and, and have done, you know, and I'm sure like you've probably got a ton of stories of, you know, what your grandparents did and, and and whatnot out there yeah i um no i don't have a whole lot of moose stories moose story. like, um my grandpa he was a gunner for um a guy in bethel a guy in, and i don't know if this was legal back then i think it was to shoot stuff from an airplane. Yeah. But literally killed everything from wolves to coyotes, foxes, jackrabbits, and even moose. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of had this operation where they, um, killed a bunch of moose on the Yukon to feed the, all the families out here. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. It was a, it was a like, different, different time way back in the day, you know, and sometimes like, in some ways it was in some ways better in some ways not not better yeah, but uh yeah was, but yeah it's it's always yeah no and i mean there's old timers that i know did all kinds of stuff um you know all the outfitters and stuff in the western brooks range used to used to airplane wolves every year and like some of those old movies from like pre statehood you know there was like bounties bounties on them and whatnot um it's pretty have you seen that documentary this is my alaska oh yeah yeah that's exactly the one i'm talking about okay right on yeah that's one of my favorites yeah that's such a guess i i put that on (laughs) yeah no it's such a good uh yeah my buddy frank actually got um he did he did some work on uh that guy's wife's house like he Leroy's passed away but he did some work on his wife's house and she had some of the DVDs and so he got still and he got one so that was pretty cool. And there's a couple other I I haven't I'm told I haven't seen them myself but there's a couple other old timers around Fairbanks that um were kind of in the same in the same crew of guys that that filmed a bunch of yeah. stuff they did too so you know, one of these days, hopefully, hopefully some of that, some of that stuff will come out. It'd be really cool to watch it. Yeah. I was, I was surprised at how good the quality was from, from that documentary. This is my Alaska. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it took a, knowing, just knowing how much of a pain it is to do like good video stuff now. Like it's pretty Mm -hmm. impressive what those guys were able to do with those big old cameras and, you know, Yeah, pretty pretty crazy. Um, that was one thing I meant to ask you about earlier. So I didn't realize before I started following your stuff. You guys, you guys have ice road. Is that on the Kuskokwim out there? Yep. So <clears throat> I don't know how long they've been doing it, but ever since I, came, I moved to Bethel nine years ago, the I think the state of Alaska DOT funded the ice road project. Yeah. Um, 
And so I'll just add that Bethel is a hub to 56 communities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people in this region. And so traveling by, you know, air is the only way for a lot of these villages, but for the ones on the Cuscoquim, when it freezes, they they plow it um, depending on the the conditions. And like last the last few years has been really good because it's it gets cold and then it gets warm and then it gets cold again. So the river freezes, all the ice buildup freezes jagged mm-hmm. and it rains for two weeks and gets flat and then freezes again so last year or was it two years ago they had the ice road plowed from Tintatuliac, which is 40 miles down the river all the way up to crooked creek which is 140 miles up river so there's if you count if you count the if you count the all the bends in the river there's close to 300 miles of ice road plowed like one way Wow. Uh, and it's very highly traveled. Um, I mean, there's cars and trucks passing within minutes of each other. And it's just, it's, I mean, that's why the DOT, the state funds the, the, to keep it open and clean. Yeah. So, um, and then even in, you know, in the, the river's a main travel system for everyone that uses it. And even in the summertime, you see boats pass you know, within minutes of each other. It's very highly traveled. Yeah. I don't think, and and like people that haven't been up and seen it, I don't think people realize how much, you know, we all talk about like our rivers being, being highways up here, but they really are, you know, it's, it's such otherwise like harsh country and inaccessible. Like that's really cool. I, I didn't know that that ice road was that extensive even, you know, that, like, yeah, it depends on the year. Like this year, they made it to Crooked Creek, yeah. Then they got warm, and they never went back up there. Like they went as far as Antioch, yeah. But all, you can pretty much count on Antioch to Bethel, or actually Antioch, Bethel, and then there's what we call the Tundra Villages. Yeah, Three villages west of here are uh, Nunapicha, Kasigluk, and Atmount. Atmount, and the um, those villages are on the Johnson River. And so the Johnson flows into the Cuscoquim. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah, that that it's pretty. It's not. It's it's an awesome thing, especially if you know in the winter. Like I said, it's so expensive to fly, and and a you know you're limited just by weather and all kinds of stuff. So, no, that's really cool. Um, yeah. Speaking of of like springtime and melting stuff, it's uh, like seal seal and walrus time yeah. is that was that what i've been seeing <laughs> my you know you asked me what my favorite animal hunt is i actually have three it's it's moose in the rut wolf and seal in the spring um and so now everyone is transitioning the seal hunting and having ice to hunt it is a like it's a big deal because the there's studies on like seals on the state of Alaska fishing game website where they put trackers on them. And so they kind of follow the ice pack mm-hmm. So on a good year. The ice will go from up by Barrow down here and it kind of ends by Bethel. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the, the seals that we like to eat, which are bearded seals, and ring tails kind of stay on the edge of the the southern edge of the ice pack. And so uh, they winter down here. And when the ice sticks around, they kind of follow the ice edge back up north. And this is this year is one of those really good years. And so a lot of people are getting uh, bearded teals um, and ring tails. So ring tails are kind of smaller mm-hmm. and really good. Um, seal oil yeah i mean they all make really good seal oil but ringed is our favorite oil and then bearded seal makes the best turkey nice or we call it dry meat <clears throat> yeah what describe like how you guys go about how you guys go about hunting them because that it just like it's a whole new awesome world to me yeah it's man i, I i've been hunting with like 
guys are a little older than me that have been doing it their whole lives. And it just amazes me the knowledge that they have about these seals. Like a seal will pop up 200 yards away and they can identify it through binoculars. And me, I'm still learning. I'm just like, I see a seal. I'm like, kind of looks like a bearded seal, but, and they're like, Nope, it's a spotted seal. And, and so, you know, hunting with these guys, I'm, I'm learning. So it starts the, the coastal ice, um, is stuck to the, the land still. So you have to snow machine out over the frozen water and it varies between two miles to 20 miles. And so you get to the ice edge, obviously you have to snow machine your boat and everything and you get out there <clears throat> and we remove the sled from the, or the boat from the sled. And then you have to put your snow machine and sled where you think it's not going to fall in the water. Cause yeah. it, it happens every year. Like you snow machine away from the edge to either, um, a sandbar or a big piece of ice that has no cracks in it. And those, you yeah. can tell what sandbars are because obviously the top of the ice has got some like mud stains on it mm-hmm. and they're usually taller. Um, so you, you put the snow machine where you think it's not going to drift away. And then you pretty much prepare for like 12 hours on the water. Yeah. <clears throat> so you boat out and Try to find a like a good pack ice, uh, and so for the Kuskokwim Bay, for example, that there's like three or four main channels. They go out from the Kuskokwim Bay out towards like the Bering Sea, and usually those are lines of the ice. And so you boat out there, <clears throat> and you have to go slow because these seals. I mean, they'll they'll die for. I've witnessed like ten to twelve minutes. Wow. But then my uncle um, tells me that they can dive up to 45 minutes. And I believe it because, I mean, they're so huge. You know, I, I was watching uh, this seal on this trip. We were at the the very edge of the Kuskokwim Bay, at the very tip of it. Mm-hmm. And I watched these seals go under the ice, start my timer, and between 10 and 12 minutes, they come out in the very same spot. Wow. And so I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like, you know. When I was a kid, I would hold my breath for, you know, 60 to 90 seconds. And yeah. I'd come up gasping for air, you know. And, and so, yeah, these seals die for a long time. And that's why you, when you hit the pack ice, you want to drive slow. And because um, when these seals come up, they, I mean, they can come up anywhere. Yeah. They generally like the ice. Um, they sleep on them a lot. And... Um, <clears throat> right now the, the females are giving, they're having their pups. Yeah. And so we just kind of follow the ice edge slowly. And sometimes we'll take a break and pull the boat up on top of the ice and hang out for a while. And even when we're drifting with, I mean, the current's moving like five miles an hour Yeah. or even more. So you pull up on top of the ice and you just kind of sit there and wait with your rifle ready and they pop up right right next to us. Oh wow! Shoot them. It's where a four stroke's nice, huh? Do you guys use a four stroke outboard? Yeah, pretty much everyone has four strokes. I still have a two stroke right now, a Yamaha seventy, but it's not on a boat because a boat, my boat, kind of, it's not working anymore. It's, it's it, it was it was handed down to me and it was pretty worn out. Yeah, it's very leaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't I haven't made time to patch all the holes and stuff oh it reminds me i don't know what is that guy's name i saw there's a station radio station that we all like to listen to in town it's like a lot of a lot of um uh bush stuff and like kind of kind of the native station in town they play like a, a song called uh, oil spill at my fish camp oh that's think, robert Gregory. yeah yeah that's such a funny song yeah oh man Got a lot of funny songs. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So when, so when we're seal hunting, um, aside from looking at trying to identify the seals that are in the water, we're looking for seals on top of the ice. Yeah. <clears throat> Do they kind of haul? They kind of haul out and and rest on yeah, that haul, ice out there. They haul out. Um, and each one, you know, they're all 
different colors and lengths. I mean, a lot of them are very camouflaged. You can't even, it's like a lot of times you'll be boating and you'll see a head pop up and then instantly in the water, it's like, shit, how do I not see that? Yeah. Here? But it, they're literally the same color as ice. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's why you want to go really slow and, and it's def- it's kind of like wolf hunting, man. It's a lot of patience and a lot of glassing. Yeah. So. And you probably you probably like have limited chances because they seem like they would be pretty spooky. You know, they're used to predators, and I mean, getting back in the waters or safe spot. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's hit or miss as far as them being spooky. I mean, some some are like very. They get spooked from like two hundred yards. They'll yeah. They hear the boat wake up and start swimming. Um, yeah. But some sleep, man. Sometimes, sometimes you can get like literally ten feet away. Oh wow! Uh, yep. And usually, I mean, um, spotted seals are. I don't know. I think they're the easiest to get close to. Um, and then walrus are definitely um, pretty easy to get close to. Especially the young ones. Like I had uh, video on my story last week of this young bull walrus that we boated up to and he woke up we were like i don't know 40 yards out he woke up looked at us and just laid back down he didn't really care and then we drove away and he never he never went in until we got on step um but i also think that walrus don't have very good eyesight yeah a lot of times you'll be driving up and they'll pick up their head look at you and lay back down Oh, so, I guess it makes up it makes up for their lack of spookiness. They make up for it and how big they are. It looks like it'd be quite the quite the yeah, job yeah. cutting one of those things up. <laughs> yeah, they're massive. I mean, it takes takes a couple hours to butcher one up. Man, so. yeah. Like how? Uh, when? What do you guys? How do you guys usually take stuff down out there? Do you just kind of kind of quick do like a quick butcher job on them or like skin the seals and then, and they get everything back and deal with it back home or. Well, so this, the seals, um, are usually pretty fast. I mean, I can gut, we usually just gut them. Mm-hmm. So cut the head off, gut it. And I can do that within, you know, three minutes. Yeah. Just leave the whole body intact. But if it's too big, then you, you separate the fat from the body, um, to be able to lift it easier you know mm-hmm. um <clears throat> the the walrus we when we shoot them we pull the boat up either next to the ice or on top of the ice and you i mean they're so massive you have to cut them in slabs so yeah you cut, you cut slabs in the skin kind of like you ever seen pictures of uh, like, like the whales whales yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so you, you cut slabs out and you just pick away like cut slabs off throw it in the boat and then you start with the the meat and then you cut ribs out and it's honestly kind of like breaking down a moose huh um, i think all animals are pretty pretty similar yeah uh, as far as that goes and i mean i can i've done it so much i can break down an entire walrus with just a knife same with the moose I, yeah i know all the, where all the joints are and, yeah it seems like that's the key to just knowing some anatomy and how, you know, you can take part anything with just a knife. If you, you're, yeah. you're practiced up on it, <laughs> even yeah. those, even those little, uh, even those little Havilon knives, you know, you can take apart a lot of stuff with one of those. If you're just finesse, you finesse it, not, not crank on it. People complain about breaking them, but yeah, you, you're not supposed to, to twist or pry with them. Right. It's like a little scalpel. I, I, I've got a ha- couple of Havilons. I don't really, I don't use them too much. Like I might use it to cut the skin, you know, like yeah. on, on height that's the quarter inch thick. I might use it for that, but otherwise, I usually usually like I use. I'm uh, sorry, I use a like a twelve inch um, old timer butcher knife. Nice. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I like. I mean, I like to have lawn stuff for, especially for skinning heads and stuff, or from like caping a sheep or something like that. I really right. like them, but um, it is nice to have, and you know, it's nice to have a little bit bigger knife for like a moose or, or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, you get a good sharp knife, you can cut up a whole moose with it really without, without having right. to touch it up. 
But uh, I know some of the guys like out in uh, when we were muskox hunting on Nelson, they liked that Dex those Dexter knives. Yeah, seemed like those I have were, I have a couple of those. Yeah, seems like those are pretty popular. I was trying to pay attention to like what people who cut up a bunch of stuff are using because they they typically know more than know more than I do when they're when they're <laughs> doing it all the time. There's a reason you do you use the stuff you use, mm-hmm. but um. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about mechanic. Do you have to find yourself doing a lot of field mechanicing out there? Like, do you get, do you do a lot of your work on your own plane or, or stuff like that? It reminded me uh, to, because I, I was just, before we came in here, was wrenching on my kids, my kids' snow machine. I hate, I'm not very good, very good mechanic and I hate doing it when I don't, when I don't have to, but sometimes you do. Yeah. Um, so with the airplane, I'm not an airplane mechanic, yeah. but it's my, it's like, you know, the airplane is my snow machine. It's my boat. It's my four wheeler. I use it to hunt a lot of things. Yeah. And sometimes you just get out there and shit breaks. Yeah. And I'm not going to fly a mechanic in. No. So I bring tools and I, I fix what I can. Like this fall, I went from, uh, from here to Serpentine Hot Springs, and that's about five hours away. And about halfway there, my carb heat stopped working. And so that's when you, you get, can get your carb icing up a little bit? Right, yeah, but it was clear that day. So I'm like, you know what, it's doing all right. I think we're just going to continue on. I've got tools in my tool bag that I always carry, and when yeah. we get there, I can make something work. And so we got to the hot springs and – <clears throat> took took the cowling off and I actually robbed a different bolt from a different cable and put it on there so I can make it back home because we're 500 miles away mm-hmm. 400 miles away or whatever and so yeah I mean I definitely have to fix some things out there um, and I carry a very basic toolkit bunch of safety wires safety wire pliers and a lot of duct tape yeah <laughs> but when i'm on the snow machine i just carry a few wrenches of like uh popular bolts that i have on the machine like a 13 a 10 to 13 and the 17 pretty much yeah seems like a um, lot of a lot of sleds historically i mean stuff's more complicated now but you know right. they kind of they try to have it only be a few a few sizes stuff right. i mean i you know. so i definitely i carry enough to fix something if i can like if like if, if something breaks i can most of the time i can fix it and limp home yeah yeah but if it's something like a like a track comes completely off and i can't you know i can't do yeah. about that yeah no it was uh i was kind of the same kind kind of the same way i'm not as up on my uh my newer, my newer outboard, but I, it, sorry, refresh, reach over to the fridge here. Uh, my newer outboard, my old one, I was pissed because it finally, like, it, it gave up the ghost and, like, lost the compression right at, as I was to the point where I could fix almost anything that wasn't catastrophic on it wow. in the field. And then something catastrophic happened. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, oh, it just, it just lost all compression and you know basically blew the motor it didn't throw anything through the block or anything but um oh yeah she did it like overheat and, and do that uh no it didn't overheat at that time i'm trying to remember because it's been a couple of years but uh what what was that because i've done that three times where the engine overheated and seized yeah and i just pulled the spark plugs out dump oil in the in the cylinders yeah and, and, and then just break free and then worker yep. loose yeah no it didn't it, yeah it didn't seize on me but it wouldn't like it just died and wouldn't run and i'm trying to remember because i <laughs> i dealt with so many issues with that motor <laughs> that yeah. i can't remember what exactly it was and as soon as i got it back i like tested and there was almost like no compression in one of the cylinders <laughs> I mean, it was, it was toast. So I pretty much buried it. I still, I think I still have it here. I need to just give it to someone or I intended to have it gone through and see if it could be rebuilt. Cause I think that 
that block may have already been rebuilt once. So, yeah. and I think they only made like one oversized piston anyway. I hate, mecha- I hate, I hate mechanicking, but I do find it rewarding when I can fix some simple yeah. little things. Like I, I, used to hate it, I used to hate it too, but, um, I recently put an addition on my house and it was a, it's a garage. Uh, it's only 15 by 24. I think it's, no, it's definitely longer than 24. Anyway, um, so I got sick of skinning in my house. Yeah. Rick was tired of me skinning wolves and wolverines in the kitchen. And I'm like, man, my trapping partner, he's, he wasn't like, it was hard to go to his place, you know, because it just, it didn't work out between not just my trapping partner, myself, but like working out with family where you get to hang out that yeah. didn't really work out. So I got tired of skinning in my kitchen after she went to bed or her kitchen, I guess. And I finally tore down my, my back patio or deck or whatever mm-hmm. and used the beams from that to put a, a garage on my house. So now I have a, that's why it's 15. It's kind of an odd number 15 by, I think it's 24 or 30. I, I can't remember. But yeah. Anyway, I put that on my house and now I have a place to skin and I have a worm shop to fix machines in. Yeah. And so I've, I've learned a lot more in the last year and started wrenching a lot of my own stuff. And yeah. I actually enjoy it because I'm like, you know, I'm home, but I'm yep. also working on my, yeah. my machines and stuff. Like I've, I've been doing a lot of work in there. And yeah. It's, it's, it's reward, like it's rewarding in its own way, you know. Like my kid's sled that I was, um, it it wasn't it wasn't running right and it was leaking fuel, so I I ended up just you know tearing the carb you know tearing the carburetor apart and cleaning all that up. And I think I I got it got it figured out, but you know you, it's it is I gotta admit it is a little fun on one hand once you're all done, <laughs> you know, like learning a little intricate intricacies of each you know, different stuff. And it is all like, I'll vouch for you. It's nice to not have, not have to, to have a nice spot to skin stuff. I haven't, when I bought this, this house, um, the garage, this like where my office is, is in a detached garage and it was unfinished and I ended up finishing it and, and don't ever try to hire me to tape sheetrock for you. <laughs> Cause it was, that was pretty bad, but, uh, you know, once it was done, man, you know, I got had a spot to skin because I was still skinning a bunch of wolves at the time. And, you know, pe- like pe- that's another thing some people don't realize if you haven't done it, man, it takes sometimes it takes two or three days to thaw out a wolf just to just to thaw it out enough to skin it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, man. I, I, I know. But, yeah, no. And, and, and I maybe I've told taught, told this story on the podcast. It's getting long enough that I probably have told every story I've got three or four times, but, um, yeah, just having been any, any like remote stuff. I always think about like, Oh, how am I going to fix something if it breaks? Or, you know, one time we ran into some guys, um, way out in the middle of nowhere that were like, it was four guys in a little 16 foot boat. And they had that boat packed to the hilt full of shit, heavy, <laughs> you know, heavy stuff too, like camping chair, you know, and they kind of flagged us down and they had like a 25, an old 25 horse, uh, Johnson, uh, like tiller motor <laughs> and which, you know, whatever. And they, I pulled over and said, man, it's, do you know anything about jets? And I'm like, well, I got one. That's, you know, I know a little bit and well, it's stuck in, it's, it's like, it's stuck in neutral. And <laughs> I'm like, well, they don't get stuck in neutral. Like they're either going or they're I'll not. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I, you know, I'm like, well, where's your, you know, let's get your tools. He's like, well, I don't have any, Oh, <laughs> you know, and it was like the maiden voyage on this boat and, huh. you know, in a, yeah, in a place where they probably should not have taken the maiden voyage. Anyway, I got the tools wow. and I'm, I pulled the, pulled the foot off and sure, sure enough, you like grab the, the drive shaft and she'd just spin. I'm like, that's not supposed to do that. <laughs> So either they like, either they like stripped out some gears. I didn't pull the whole lower unit off, but they either stripped out some right. gears in the, 
and the power head or like broke, you know, sheared off the drive shaft. Cause I was like, well, as soon as I, as soon as I could spin the, the impeller, I was like, I hope you, I, I hope that this broke off the, like the, the, um, Spleen. the key there. Yeah. That little uh, drive key that you put in the sacrificial police, but no, we weren't that lucky. <laughs> so <laughs> at least they were, they were upriver of the landing. So I was like, well, I don't really have the, I, I didn't have a, a powerful enough boat to do anything to help them out aside from like, say, stay close to the shore. Yeah. So I think it took them a while to float back, to float back to the landing, but that's a lesson learned. I know I've, I've had to learn, learn plenty of those myself. Yep. No, I've definitely but, had a bunch of, trips where I drifted home. Yep. Now you go upriver, you don't go downriver. <laughs> yep, you go upriver whenever possible, especially if you're like ex- if you're experimenting with something or you you just made a repair. Or in a jet boat if you're in jet water, definitely go upriver. Yep. Yep, no, that's the truth. But uh <laughs> Yeah, man, well uh it's been great great getting to getting to chat with you and and you know, hear about what all all the stuff you got going on. We'll have to have to have you back on if you ever find yourself in Fairbanks. You definitely, definitely give me a shout. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely make it there once in a while. I actually lived there when I was ten years old uh, for two years. My mom was finishing up her teaching degree, so nice. I'm familiar with Fairbanks. I, I even flew out of there for Eglin, so I make nice. it there once in a while. I don't have any plans to go there right now but <clears throat> yeah well that's 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 all right but uh yeah you're always welcome to come come hang out and then uh yeah no so yeah like i said um you got any got any any closing thoughts i mean you're probably antsy just to get back out and get back out and hunt some more seals how many how much longer does that go for you well right now it's gonna uh i think it's gonna be good for probably another month at least good uh and it's it's hit or miss. I mean, sometimes it's good for like a week. Sometimes it's not good at all. So I I think it's been good for a month, or yeah, about a month. And I think it's going to be good for another month. It's it's been cold and there's a lot of sea ice out there. So as long as it doesn't blow away, it'll be okay. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, I I, I got to work for the next two weeks. I got some uh, fishing game surveys starting here in a few days so oh all the seal hunting's going to be gone done by the time you're done with work (laughs) it'll be my first priority when uh when when the surveys are over (laughs) yeah that sounds good man i'll definitely be be paying attention and uh yeah you can uh you know i think i mentioned it earlier but you can if you want to watch what art's up to uh on instagram it's your handle's just bama 907 right yep yep awesome man well yeah like i said great to great to chat with you and and uh you know wish you best of luck this season i'm chomping at the i've still got freaking three feet of snow out out here so (laughs) it's gonna be i'm antsy for bear season but we've got a bit yet right on well thanks for having me yeah no problem man and uh Thanks, everybody, for listening, and if you enjoy Tundra Talk, appreciate it if you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on, and uh, tune in next time. Thanks.